All right, so if you're new to Melanie Park, we are in week nine of an 11-week series that we've been doing this summer, walking through Jesus' famous and paradigm-shifting sermon on the mount. In this sermon, if you've been here or if you've read it, you've seen Jesus address a lot of practical topics under the overarching theme of righteousness. Jesus emphasized, and we've tried to do so each week, that this Sermon on the Mount is not a list of things we must do or don't do. So don't lust, don't judge, do give, do fast, do pray. It's not a to-do list. Rather, Jesus is painting a beautiful picture of what it looks like to live as a member of God's kingdom through a righteousness given to us, not a righteousness of our own making. Jesus gives us a righteousness that's imputed to us through his work for us. So this Sermon on the Mount is a picture of what it looks like to live in God's kingdom. As Joe said a few weeks back, I love this line, I'm just going to rip it from you. The Sermon on the Mount is not about doing more. Remember what he said? It's about doing differently. Not about doing more, it's about doing differently. Learning to surrender every part, every part surrendered of our hearts to King Jesus. And over time, as we do that, we see the culture of his kingdom grow and expand in our lives. So after today, we have two more weeks left. Uh, Roger Wisdom will be back next week to uh, help us land the Sermon on the Mount Plain. But today... Jesus will invite us to consider, once again, the topic of prayer. Prayer as a citizen of God's kingdom. Now, you may remember that in this sermon, Jesus has already spoken about prayer a few times. In fact, catch this, there are more verses in the Sermon on the Mount on prayer than any other topic. Perhaps that's an indication that prayer is a vital means of living life in God's kingdom. So quick recap, Matthew 5, 44, Jesus told us who to pray for. He said, pray for those who persecute you. So easy task there, right? Remember, this is not a to-do list. This is a righteousness given to us. Matthew 6, the section we call the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus provides his most explicit teaching on prayer. Essentially, he gives us a prayer that teaches us how to pray. A prayer that is foundational for engaging with God as a citizen of his kingdom. And then in today's text, Matthew 7, Jesus offers one more brief but power-packed teaching that's meant to encourage us to persist in prayer. Say persist. Persist. That's Jesus' goal for us today. But before we get any further, I don't want to assume an understanding. So let me ask you, what is prayer? Shout it out. What's prayer? Talking to God. Talking to God. Wow, that was everyone in unison. That wasn't planned. <laughs> Any other nuances to prayer? Talking to God. Listen. Listening to God. Okay, that's important. What else? The basis for relationship. What did someone say back there? Okay, I can't hear it, but I'm sure it was awesome. You guys in the back benefited. <laughs> So prayer is talking to God, relationship, listening, then whatever brilliant thing was said in the back. Prayer, here's a definition I heard recently. Prayer is talking to God about what we are doing together. Prayer is talking to God, relationship, about what we are doing together. Prayer is a personal 
experientially interactive relationship between us and God, where he speaks, we respond, we speak, he responds. Prayer is talking to God about what we are doing together. Pretty simple, right? But here's the problem. Prayer is hard, isn't it? Isn't prayer hard and isn't persisting in prayer even harder? Am I alone in this struggle? I feel exposed up here. (laughs) You know, to be clear, I know there are some incredible prayer warriors in this room, uh, but I don't think I'm alone in my struggle with prayer. You know, if you've been in church for a while, you've heard quotes about Martin Luther and I think George Mueller too, who said, once said something along the lines of, I have so much to do today, I better spend the first three hours of my day in prayer. Right? Have you ever heard that? Those seemingly unrealistic quotes about famous people. You know, I hear stuff and I'm like, okay, that might be a life goal, but there's no way I'm going to hit that. Spend three hours of every day in prayer. How highly unproductive is that? And I don't know about you, but I am prone to jump into my day before seeking the presence of the Lord. And then during my day, I'm prone to rely on myself and my abilities rather than resting in the peace and power of God that's available to me at any moment in prayer. And at the end of the day, the truth is, my prayer life, or lack of it, reveals that I don't really think that I need God. And it also reveals that I likely have a misunderstanding of who God is. We'll unpack that some more later. So prayer, according to Jesus, is a vital aspect of life in his kingdom. But for me, and I suppose many of you, our default is not to pray. Our default is not to pray, which reveals my tendency towards self-reliance rather than God-dependence. When it comes to prayer, I think also there are two ditches that Christians can tend to fall in, one on either side. The first ditch would be to see prayer as transactional, right? If I say this, God does that, like a vending machine. You put money in, you get a product out. Or we can view God as a a cosmic butler or a fix-it man or even a genie in a bottle. Or more subtly, this transactional view Uh, we often operate in the sense that God owes me, doesn't he? Look at what I'm doing. Look at what I've done. God owes me. And then we get frustrated when God doesn't answer our prayer when we want, how we want. Prayer is not transactional. It's a personal, experientially interactive relationship between us and God, talking to God about what we are doing together. So that's one side. View prayer as transactional. The other ditch is to see prayer as futile. To see prayer as futile. And the thought goes, well, God's sovereign, so he's just going to do whatever he wants to do anyway. It doesn't matter if I pray. Right? Some of you have, have been there. I've been there. So we don't pray because we believe God is sovereign, ignoring his invitation to bring our request before him because of his sovereignty. Some of us also have it in our minds that that God is too great to be bothered with me. Like if I were to call the President of the United States today, he would not pick up a call from me. And even more so we think with God. Why would he, the Almighty One of the universe, why would he care about my little problems? Or we think subtly, I can handle it. 
I've got this one. Maybe next time for a bigger issue I'll ask him, but I've got this one. I'm good for today. Prayer is not futile. It is vital. So if you struggle with prayer, you're not alone. If you'd like to grow in prayer, you're in good company today. Prayer is the greatest invitation in the world, yet for so many of us, far too often, we fail to persist in prayer. So let's together, let's submit ourselves uh, to the teaching of Jesus, our King, today, and let's pray and ask his Spirit to help us. So King Jesus, we do come to you today with arms open to hear your brief but power-packed teaching about prayer. Lord, would you soften our hearts? Would you open our minds? Would you submit our wills to your way? And would you speak clearly, directly, personally, experientially today through your word to each and every one of us in this room? Holy Spirit, I do pray for, for you to alive in me. I pray that your words would flow through my lips and that you would take those words and cause life to grow in people's hearts, that the gospel would bear fruit and that your word would not return void this morning. We pray in Jesus' mighty name, amen. So turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7. We're going to walk through verses 7 through 12 together. Jesus says, Matthew 7, starting in verse 7, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. So three words there. Ask, seek, knock. These words are present tense imperatives, meaning keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. How do kingdom people pray? They keep on. Persistence is implied in the very words that Jesus uses. But also notice the progression and the progressive intensification of the words. So first, we ask. We present our request to him, right? We pray for provision, protection, whatever your request might be, we ask. But second, we seek, which is asking plus acting. We actively seek out the one to whom we're making our request. And then third, once we find him, we knock until he opens the door. We don't knock once and then run off like bored kids on a summer afternoon, right? Some of you have experienced those kids this summer. Knock, 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 open the door, no one's there. Some of you are those kids. Stop, it's annoying. But we don't knock once and then run away. We knock and knock and knock and keep on knocking at the door of our heavenly Father. So here's a picture that might help. So our youngest daughter, Callie, she's six, um, is notorious for asking for candy, okay? She's an incredibly sweet girl with an unbelievably large sweet tooth, okay? We went to the 4th of July parade a month ago on the 4th of July, and uh, we came home with a huge, huge bag of candy. And on a fairly regular basis, it happened literally every day this week. I think she was doing it so I can have an illustration. Uh, every morning this week, as soon as she wakes up, she asks for a piece of candy. To which I or Ashley reply, no. It's eight in the morning. But then it's only a matter of time before she'll seek out the bag of candy, grab a piece, and come to us and say, in a cute and convincing manner, 
I found this piece of candy. Can I have it? To which we reply, no. Go put it in the bag, maybe after lunch. And then finally, without fail, no joke, nine times out of ten, I'm in the bathroom. I hear, hey, Dad, are you in there? Yes, Callie. Can I have a piece of candy? No, Callie. Wait until after lunch, and I'm in the bathroom. Callie will keep on asking. It doesn't matter how many times I say no. It doesn't matter what time of the day or what situation she's in. She asks, she seeks, and she knocks on the door of her father uninhibited. Uninhibited. And this family is the invitation of our Heavenly Father to us. Regardless of where you find yourself, regardless of what you're even going to ask for, his invitation to us is to come unhindered to me in prayer. To keep on asking, he's saying to you. Keep on asking for what you need. Don't ever stop. Keep on seeking your Father for the help that you need. Don't ever look elsewhere. And keep on knocking on your Father's door, because believe it or not, he actually wants to hear your request, even if it's for a piece of candy. And he absolutely loves to give you what you need. Notice, though, in verse 8, who is this invitation for? Jesus says, for everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. So who's the everyone that Jesus is addressing here? Is it all humanity? I don't think so. This is an invitation for children of the Heavenly Father those who've been adopted in through the work of Christ the Son. What Jesus is saying is every one of God's children who ask, receive. Every one of God's children who seek, find. And every one of God's children who knock, the door will be open. None of God's children are excluded. He welcomes and responds to every one. But here we come to a perceived problem. I've asked God for things before, and he didn't give them to me, right? Am I alone in that? You've asked something, and he doesn't give it to you. I've sought help from God that I didn't find, and I've knocked and knocked and knocked on his door, but then wonder, is he ignoring me? Verse 8 seems to be a promise, but from my experience, and I'm going to assume yours, has God broken his promise to his children? This is a really important objection to work through. Does this verse say that God's children get everything they ask for? You astute Bible scholars would agree that no, it does not. The promise is we'll receive something. We'll find something, but not necessarily exactly what we request every time we request it. The truth is, God always answers the prayer of his children, but not always in the way we desire and think is best. Sometimes God answers yes, sometimes he answers no, and often he answers wait. So God answers yes when our requests align with his will. I don't know how it works, he does, but when our request aligns with his will, 
um, he answers with a hearty yes. And when that happens, it's incredible, right? We go around telling everyone, look what God did. He answered my prayer. I prayed this. He did this. Wow. Sometimes God answers yes. But that doesn't happen every time we pray. Sometimes God answers no. And often the no hurts really bad. God, remove this cancer from me. No. What? God, rescue my friend from addiction. No. Why? God, restore this marriage. No. What are you doing up there? Why does God at times say no to our often really good requests? Well, I don't know. If I did, I would be God, and that would be scary for all of you. But what I do know is that when God says no, there must be a good reason for it, because he's a God who's not only infinitely good, but is infinitely wise. So, so in that space, that really hard space where it seems that God is answering you with a no, he's actually leading you into a deeper place of trust and reliance on him. Human beings, even children of God, are simply not wise enough to determine how every request should be answered. You know, there's a lot going on in our physical world. There's a lot going on in the spiritual realm that we just don't see and we just don't know. So when our ask doesn't align with God's will, however right and good it may seem to us, we must trust that his no is best. It's best for us, best for the people around us, because he is infinitely good and infinitely wise. So sometimes God answers yes, other times he answers no, and often he says, wait, wait. Why does God make us wait? Um, I think there's at least two reasons. Uh, First, in the waiting, God is teaching us. He's teaching us to persist in prayer. Waiting forces us to work out everything that Jesus is calling us to in this passage. Wait, okay, I'm going to keep on seeking, keep on asking, keep on knocking. So when God seems to answer with wait, we must not give up praying. Instead, we must press into prayer all the more. Keep on. Don't give up. Your requests are not annoying to him. He invites it and urges us to come to him in prayer, to persist in prayer. Because apparently, persisting in the waiting, there's good reason for it. Because in the waiting, secondly, God is often working to wean us off of ourselves. Right In the waiting, God is weaning us off of ourselves to rid us, of, rid us from the self-reliance and self-righteousness that we are so prone to and to drive us deeper into God-dependence. Now, it can be easy as you're waiting on God in prayer to want to step in and get working on God's behalf, right? We've been there. To take matters into our own hands, to, to do what he's failing to do. If only he could see what the right answer would be. But in the waiting, God is offering us a warning to to slow down. Just, Just hold off. 
Pump the brakes. This is all intentional. Will you trust me? Will you trust me? So I've found at times as I'm waiting for God to work, as I'm persisting in prayer, that over time I I begin to see some sin in my heart that I didn't see before and probably never would have seen if I hadn't been persisting in prayer. God used the waiting to expose sin in my heart. And I began to see how deep, how deep my self-reliance and self-righteousness runs and how selfishness has tainted even my prayers to him. God will often answer our prayers with wait, because in the waiting, he's doing some heart-shaping, character-building work in us. And through the waiting, God is shaping us to become more and more like Jesus, and to bring our desires and our prayers more fully in line with his will. So as we wait, we're to keep on praying until we either receive what we asked for, or God redirects our request, or he gives us something better in the long run. The promise in this passage is not, I will give you everything you ask for when you ask for it the way you want it. The promise from God to his children is this, and I I stole this from Tim Keller, so I'm ripping Joe Magby and Tim Keller today. This is brilliant. God is saying to you, his child, I will either give you what you asked for, or I will give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything I know. Isn't that great? I will either give you what you ask for, or I will give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that I know. Our God, as we sang this morning, is a good, good father who only gives good gifts to his children, which is exactly where Jesus leads us next. So take a look at verse 9. Or which one of you, if his son asked him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So any, any dads in here? Any dads, raise your hand. All right. This morning for breakfast, did you feed your kids cereal with milk or stones with milk? Right? Stones? Pancakes? Did you go to the pantry and pull out the Lucky Stones or the Rock Krispies? Or the Cocoa Pebbles? See what I did there? I spent a lot of your uh, paid time this week working on those. For dinner tonight, hey, Dad, can I have fish sticks? Or if you're fancy, hey, Dad, can I have salmon? No, but how about a venomous snake? Right? That would be ludicrous. That would be absolutely insane. So now, there are always exceptions, right? Some dads do horrible things to their kids. But for the most part, Most dads love giving good things to their children, even though all dads, according to Jesus, are evil, okay? How's that for a name tag? Hello, my name is Evil. I love this. Jesus is never one to mince his words, right? Verse 11, he could have said that we're misinformed, that we're misled. He just goes straight for the spiritual jugular. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more 
will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? What Jesus is saying here is that your Father in heaven is exponentially better than even the best Father on earth. Because he has none of the sins, none of the limitations or weaknesses that we have. So the logic goes, if your earthly father would give you good things, and even if he wouldn't, how much more will your father in heaven give good things to every one of his children who ask? Your father in heaven is not only not evil, but is infinitely good and infinitely wise. So even if he answers with no or wait, Jesus is saying, Do not ever think for one moment that your father is giving you a bad gift. You can trust him because God only gives to his children what is good for his children. You know, as I've been preparing this over the past uh, few weeks, um, I was really struck by this truth, and I've shared it with some of the guys that I meet with. Um, I referenced it earlier, uh, and I think it's really important. Okay, so here it is. Build up. Here you go. When it comes to prayer... How we view our Heavenly Father matters. It matters a lot. How we view our Heavenly Father matters. Because our view of God actually shapes how we pray. And virtually every error in prayer can be traced back to a misperception about the character of God. Our lack of prayer is most often due to disbelief about God. We either believe a lie about him or don't fully believe a truth about him, and that severely affects how we pray. Take, for example, Exodus 34, verse 6. Do you believe that your Father in heaven is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness? Or, if you were to flip all those words, do you believe that he's merciless, unpleasant, explosive in anger, abounding in indifference and disregard. Your answer to that question might be revealed by your prayer life. The reality is we frame our prayers according to how we view the character of the one we're addressing. Think about it, how this plays out in earthly uh, human relationships with kids and dads. So, two examples. A child with a gentle, kind dad will rarely hesitate to ask for things, right? These dads are approachable, they're joyful, they're generous, and their kids feel freedom and safety in the presence of their father to ask for what they need and even for what they want. And over time, kids with dads like this usually learn to ask for good things, knowing that their dad will always protect them and always provide what is ultimately good for them. So kids with gentle and kind fathers ask from a place of freedom and safety in the character of their dad. But a child with a a cruel or a stingy father will not likely ask for anything in fear of a harsh criticism, an angry outburst, or another meaningless beating. Cruel fathers care more about controlling their kids rather than caring for their kids. And stingy fathers love and selfishly hoard their time and their money and their possessions 
rather than providing generously and joyfully for what their kids need and even what they want. How awful it is being a child of a dad like this. But I fear many of us view God like that. And our wrong view of God, stingy, cruel, merciless, distant, uninterested, our wrong view of God holds us back from a life engaged with God in persistent prayer. So the question becomes practically today, what image of God do I have? What image of God do you have? Cruel, stingy, critical, harsh, or gentle, generous, joyful, and kind? And as you consider what image of God as Father you have, maybe ask a follow-up question. Does my current view align with what Jesus says in Matthew 7 and the scope of Scripture as a whole? That of a good, good father who loves, who loves to give good things to his children. If you find your prayer life lacking, and this has been my conviction this week, if you find your prayer life lacking, perhaps it's because you don't truly know who your Father in heaven is and don't fully believe what he's actually like. So, something for you to consider today. All right, let's wrap it up with verse 12. Jesus makes a transition here. Uh, we go from ask, seek, knock to the golden rule, okay? So he says, so or therefore, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So as I was reading this, I'm like, wow, Jesus, that's a really hard right turn there. Uh, pretty big transition. And what we need to see here is that the word so or therefore is really important. When we pull back and begin to see what Jesus is doing, it makes a whole lot of sense here. So the question I have for you is, what exactly is Jesus linking with that word so or therefore? Is he linking verse 12 with what we just looked at in 7 through 11? In other words, because God gives good things, therefore live out the golden rule? Is Jesus pointing out, like our vision statement does, that our vertical relationship with God, how we view him, how we pray to him, our vertical relation uh, affects our horizontal relationships, how we view people, how we interact with people? Now, there's no doubt that that's true. Our vertical no doubt affects our horizontal, but I don't think that's what Jesus is linking here. I think what Jesus is doing is zooming us out to look at the entire body of the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. He's starting his initial descent to conclude the sermon, so he's drawing our attention back to the big idea where he began. Take a look at this. Remember all the way back. Eight weeks ago, Matthew 5, verse 17, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Matthew 5, 17 and Matthew 7, 12 appear to form an envelope, bookends, if you will in which Jesus is saying, therefore, in light of all I've taught about the direction of the Old Testament law and prophets, considering everything I've said so far in this sermon about anger and lust, divorce, prayer, money, in light of all that I've said, live out this golden rule. For that statement, this statement sums up, in fact, it is the essence of the law and the prophets. 
So keep those two uh, verses in mind. A year or so later in Jesus' life, in his final week, uh, he would highlight this truth even more clearly for his followers. In Matthew 22, Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second's like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. So what Jesus is doing here, I believe, is, hey, hey, you want a summary of the law and the prophets? Here's the golden rule. Oh, hey, do you want a summary of the golden rule in one word? Here it is. You ready? Love. Everything Jesus has said between the bookends of 517 and 712 in this sermon has been pointing to this big idea all along. This is what righteousness in God's kingdom is about. Love God, love people, period. Love is the fulfilling of the law. So Melanie Park family, those who are members of God's kingdom, we get to engage daily through prayer in a relationship with our Father in heaven who only gives good things to his children. And we get to open up our lives in love towards one another so that his love can flow through us into the lives of people around us. And we get to do this together as a community, a community of persistent, prayerful love. Loving God, loving people, period. All because of the work of Jesus on our behalf. All right, sermon over, transition to communion. We're going to end today with communion, so uh, Mark in the band, why don't you guys come on up? We're actually going to take communion together while the band is leading us in this closing song. So let me explain how it's going to work. Um, I'm going to read a passage momentarily, and you're going to think about it, you're going to pray through it, and then during verse one of the song, you're just going to continue in prayer. Talk to your Father in heaven about what you're doing together, okay? Verse one, just sit and pray. Verse 2, you're going to be prompted on the screen to open your uh, bread and take the bread during verse 2. Verse 3, we'll do that with the cup. Open the cup, drink the cup. And then verse 4, we'd ask you to join in in singing, and Mark will invite you to stand as we move towards the end of the song. So if you're comfortable doing so, I know it's like a million degrees in here. The back unit's out, so I'm sorry that it's so hot. If you're comfortable, just close your eyes for a moment. And let's reflect together. So in Mark 14, we see Jesus' perfect example of what it looks like to persist in prayer to his Father while pouring out his life in love for us. Jesus didn't just teach this, he lived this for us. So Mark 14 says, And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, Jesus fell on the ground and prayed that if it were at all possible, the hour might pass from him. And then we get a, a picture of the conversation. We're led into the conversation between Jesus and his Father in heaven. He says, Jesus says, Abba, 
Father, all things are possible for you. You are infinitely loving, infinitely wise. So remove this cup from me. And the cup Jesus is praying that be removed is the cup of judgment for sin that he's about to drink on the cross. So Jesus asks his Father in heaven to remove this cup from me, and then he trusts and prays. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came back and found the disciples sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Apparently his disciples struggled with prayer just like we did. Jesus says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And then Jesus went away a second time and prayed, saying the same words. He persisted in prayer. And again came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And Jesus went away a third time, persisting in prayer, then came back and said to them, Are you still sleeping? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Millen Park family, Jesus persisted in prayer, pleading with his Father in heaven, isn't there another way? To which his Father replies, no. Jesus didn't just teach it to us. He lived it for us. A life of persistent, prayerful love, persisting in prayer to his Father in heaven, trusting the no which led him to pour out his life in love for us so that we could become children of God forever. Children who pray today and every day in the words of our master, the king of the kingdom, Father, not my will, but yours be done.